So Brother Joe Beam is here with us today to share. And uh, uh, I know that he's blessed our church for a long time. We've uh, studied and shared in a lot of his uh, books and his materials. And so I appreciate all that you've done for families and continue to do. And we want to have a prayer for you before you preach, brother. Father, thank you for bringing this brother our way. Thank you, Father, for how you've uh, used him, how you've changed his life, how you continue to mold him as he continues to disciple and teach other people. We have been blessed by that. We ask continued blessings upon his ministry and bless him today as he shares with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I really appreciate Mike sharing his pulpit with me today. And... uh, do you happen to see a, a, some glasses on that front row right in front of you there, my brother? Good. Thank you kindly. It's just a prop <laughs> with which I read. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the great invitation to be here at, at WFR, an awesome church. So thank you. I do think, though, that uh, our brother on the end who led this song or two needs some vitamin B12 or something to speed him up. What do you think? <laughs> it's pretty intense. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. In chapter 5, the Decalogue is explained, or the Ten Commandments. You've heard and read about those. That was not the entire law, by the way. There were about 700 more commandments given with it. About 350 of them were, this is what you must do, and 350 about, this is what you must not do. So roughly 700 altogether. And after he finished the Decalogue, after he's talking about that, in chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, this is what Moses has to say. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. And we're going to read first. I really stop and talk about it for a minute here. He said, it's not just for you that I'm teaching you. It's also for your children, and not just for your children, but your children's children. Now, I'm not an old man yet. I was born in the late 1800s. But I'm not born yet. I'm not an old man yet, and yet I am old enough to know something that I don't think I really understood when I was younger, which is the value of the children and the children's children. That not only do we live on this planet, not only do we live on this earth and, and have our sojourn here, but we are to pass on the good things we have learned, the things we understand to the generation behind us, and so that they can pass it to the generation behind them. And it makes a difference all the way until the world finally ends, that it keeps being handed down from generation to generation. But it's interesting at the end, and I'm reading from the New International Version here, at the end of this he says, so that you may enjoy long life. I have lived long enough to know That you can live a long life, but you may not want to. That you can live a long life that's not full of joy. And since it's talking about children here, let me just talk about that for a minute. The the other day, I was in a FedEx store shipping something over to China. And a friend of mine walked up and started speaking to me. He's in his 60s. His son is about 45. His son is in stage 4 cancer. And the doctors are giving them very little hope. As we talked for about 10 minutes about his son, you can see that my friend, my friend, even though he's in his 60s, he's extremely healthy. He'll live many, many more years. But his life right now is absolutely full of misery because of the sickness of his son. 
Actually, he said the kind of thing that every parent here would understand. He said, if God would allow, I would change in an instant the situation so that I had the cancer instead of my son. So he's going to live a long life, but right now he's in a period of life that's not very enjoyable because of the sickness. Now, it sometimes happens not just with sons who are 45. It can happen with daughters who are five. You understand that, that sometimes in life things aren't fun. We don't enjoy. Oh, and sometimes it's not just things such as illness. It can be the fact that sometimes there's just a rift in the relationship. A preacher that I know has a daughter, a grown daughter. He does not know where she is, does not know what she's doing. He doesn't even know if she's still alive because of the fact of the rift in relationship that happened with them many years ago. And so he says here, I'm going to be teaching you about this law. But it's not just so you can live a long time. It's so that you can enjoy life, so that something can be involved in this, so that as you live, you can enjoy. Now, we're going to make this make some sense in a minute or two. If you go down to verses 4 through 8, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You may remember that Jesus will quote that later. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What he's saying is, I'm giving you this law, but it's not something that you just know a little about. I want it to become part of who and what you are. Therefore, I want you to think about it all the time and have conversations about it. So no matter what you're doing, if you're eating a meal, you talk about the law of God. If you're walking on the road, law of God, you think about it and talk about it when you're going to bed. You think about it and talk about it when you get up. Because I want it to be actually in your heart, not just in your head. Surely you know the difference that sometimes things in our head don't really affect our heart, right? And that's why he told the guys, and, and these people, the Jewish people like them would do it, they actually would write parts of the scriptures, and they would tie them and, and have little boxes, and they would have them just to make sure it was around them all the time. Interestingly, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 15, he says something about that. The reason he wanted them to wear those verses, those scriptures, is so they would not, now I'm using the word that the NIV uses to translate the Hebrew, he said so they would not prostitute themselves by following their own lust. In other words, I want you to have the Word of God so much a part of you that when the temptation comes, you know it's right there in front of you. Anybody, I think the question was asked earlier if there were any sinners in the house. And I saw a lot of hands go up. As a matter of fact, you look very enthusiastic about that. <laughs> you've, you've lived long enough to know that temptations come, right? I mean, there are all kinds of temptations. You also have lived long enough to know that, that we're not all tempted by the same things. Have you realized that? As I've gotten older, I've come to realize some things about that. When other people are tempted by the same things you're tempted by, they're very compassionate toward helping you. If they're not tempted by what you're tempted by, they tend to be very judgmental. Notice that difference? Or if they are tempted by what you're tempted by but cannot admit it to themselves, they're just mean. Have you seen those people? We all have different temptations. You say, what do you mean? Well, I've said this to audiences around the world. You could dump a ton of cocaine right there. I wouldn't be tempted to take a sniff. One of my psychiatrist friends said, why not? I said, with this nose, who could afford it? <laughs> there are other things. If I knew they were within 20 miles of here, I'd be tempted to go where they are. You said, well, like what? Well, that's none of your business. But we, 
we had these temptations and what's going to give us the deliverance? He said, if you fill the word of God, not just into your head, but into your heart, where it's not just part of your logic, but part of your emotions, and you keep it in front of you, you remind yourself of that, then that's what I want you to do. And he talked about doing it with your children. Hmm. And he said, impress it on them. What does that mean? Well, you don't just teach it to them. You live it in front of them. You do it as consistently as you can. Now, you'll never be perfect. You do understand, right, that you'll never be perfect. You know that? One of my Baptist preacher friends said he tried to make that point one Sunday. He said, if anybody here is perfect, stand up. And a guy in the back stood up. Preacher thought, now what am I going to do? He said, pardon me, sir, but are you perfect? He said, no, no, I'm, I'm standing for my wife's first husband. <laughs> Other than that, there are no perfect people. But when he's saying impress, he's saying it's not just something you give lip service to. When you make it part of your heart, I want you to make it part of your children's heart. And then they will make it part of their children's heart. And the last part of this verse to read, and then we'll see if we can tie it all together. We're beginning verse 14 now. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right hmm. and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land the Lord God has promised you, et cetera, et cetera. You say, what's that Massa reference? Okay, when, when the Israeli people had come out of Egyptian bondage, you've heard that story, surely, where they crossed the Red Sea that parted so they could go across on the dry land, the Pharaoh's army chasing them and all drowned. They go out into the wilderness and they're headed toward this land that God has been promising them since the time of Abraham. And as they get over closer to the land, of course, other people are now living there. And if you remember the story as they go through there, they really are very complaining people. I mean, no matter what God did for them, they complain. For example, God gave them this thing called manna. You remember, anybody remember the story of manna in the Old Testament? I've researched that. I'm convinced that manna in the Old Testament were Krispy Kreme donuts. You say, what makes you think that? Because it was no good the next day. That's a Krispy Kreme donut. It's no good the next day. And whatever God gave them, they would complain. He was giving them manna, which actually was a kind of a seed. And he was giving them manna, and they said, we want meat. And then they complained, and he gave them some quail. And then later at Masa, they finally say, we're going we're gonna to die of thirst. We don't have enough water. And they're complaining bitterly about God again. And they were saying things like, we should have just let us die in the desert. And, and he's saying that they were testing God in the sense that God had already promised them, if you trust me, I'm going to give you everything you need. Why do you keep asking for more? Why can't you just trust that I'm giving you what you need? And so he said, don't keep asking God to give you what you want. When God's already giving you what you need, trust God. And then he wraps it up with saying, so do what is right. Hmm. Now, how do we put all this into the context of what's happening today? Anybody besides me dread watching the news. 
I mean, you never see, you just don't know what's going to happen next, what part of the world is going to happen in or anything else. And, and, and as bad as it is in the world, it's pretty bad in America. Anybody's just afraid of watching what's happening next in the United States of America. I mean, this is a world that is pretty corrupt, if you think about it. And he's saying, okay, now, if you live in a world like that, what you've got to be careful of is that you don't wind up following the gods that they follow. No, no, just as a little g gods, meaning things they have made into gods, the things they, they worship, the things they want. He's saying it's one God. He's the true God. Follow that God and be careful not to be influenced by the beliefs and values of the other people that are going to be around you because they can lead you astray. Now, let's talk particularly about how that affects children since he mentioned children in the context. You're probably aware of this, but one of the greatest fears that a child has is losing a parent. Now, obviously not the babies in arms because they don't even actually know they exist yet. But as they get older and begin to become toddlers and realize that this is my primary caregiver, which may be mom, which may be dad, hopefully it's both. For some, it's neither mom nor dad, it's somebody else. But this primary caregiver becomes very important in their world. And, and they realize they can't exist without this being. I mean, I can't feed myself. I can't go find my food. I can't even drive. I won't get a credit card till I'm five. So they go in these situations, and this baby is very afraid of being left alone. And so this great fear is that they're going to lose a parent. Now, they typically are afraid the parent's going to die. Alice and I have three children. Our oldest daughter is 45. She's mentally handicapped. She's like a little girl that lives in a woman's body. Our next daughter is 38. Our youngest daughter is 26. 19 years between the oldest and the youngest because we decided to have our own grandchildren. Skip those middlemen. The youngest was born when Alice and I were about to turn 41. I'll never forget. It was like second, third grade somewhere. They taught her to count by fives. She came home weeping. What's the matter, baby? She was counting her age increasing by one and our age increasing by five every time she increased one. She said, in five years, you're going to be dead. (laughs) We tried to explain to her it's the same either way. But it's the fear they have. I don't want to lose. Yet, yet in America, in the United States of America, this year, 1.5 million children will lose their parent, one or the other, from a divorce. There'll be over a million divorces, but 1.5 million. Imagine these are the kids who at night are praying and begging God with all their hearts, please make my dad love my mom again. Please make my mom love my dad again. Please don't let our home fall apart. Please. And yet we know that divorce is rampant and that these kids then are going to have to deal with the aftermath of that. Back in the 1970s, the prevailing wisdom was, actually, if you're not getting along very well, it's better off for your children if you do divorce. They actually get to teach that. You're better off to divorce for the sake of your kids if you're not getting along very well. And people were buying into that right and left, thinking it's actually for the sake of the children we divorce. Since then, there has been ample research, and they keep doing it, keep doing it. Not by people with an agenda, but with true researchers, like from University of Wisconsin, people on all kinds of schools like that, trying to ascertain the effect it will have on a child if the parents split up. Now, obviously, when we talk about statistics, that doesn't apply to a specific child because this child may rise above everything. But statistically speaking, we know some things like this, that kids, if they're young, when their parents divorce, are probably not going to do as well in math or science. What? Why that? Think about it. 
Those are studies that require thinking logically. And when a kid is emotionally raw, it's extremely difficult for him or her to think logically. Also, it increases, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen, but it increases the likelihood of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, criminal activity. I mean, all kinds of things. Oh, and here's another thing. It tends to lessen their likelihood of being committed to one person for life. So what they've done is they've grown up in a home where that if you weren't happy, you just split and went someplace else. And now when and if they do get married, one of the things they've been impressed upon by whichever parent left is that if you're not happy, end it. Just go someplace else. And so it becomes a self-perpetuating legacy that affects more and more people. Right now, in the United States, right now, some 20 million kids who are under 18 who are living just with one parent because the other is not there because of divorce. 20 million. And we wonder, why are all these things happening? And you go back and look at this and you say... But but what he's saying here is we should impress the law of God on our kids. If I'm going to, and by the way, by the way, if you've been divorced, please don't hear me as beating you up. I am not wanting to beat up anybody for what has happened before. You understand? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it could be that you're divorced not because of your sin, but because of your spouse's sin. I do understand that. So please don't think I'm trying to beat you up or say bad things about you or give gloom and doom where there's no hope for your children at all. Please don't hear that. Please. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if we're going to impress upon our children and their children after them the law of God, so that not only will they live a long life, but they can enjoy a long life. That doesn't mean every day is going to be happy. You do know that, right? But enjoy a long life. Then, then part of what we must do is not just tell them what is right, but demonstrate it in the way that we live. One of the things that we do at Marriage Helper, as a matter of fact, if you, I think they may have a slide for it, marriagehelper.com, yeah, marriagehelper.com, like marriagehelper.com. We do a lot of things on that website to help people figure out how to solve their problems and save their marriages. One thing we do on Facebook is we have what's called a closed group called Save My Marriage. That means you have to actually ask to be put into the group. That way we screen out the complete idiots. Well, most of them. Right now, there's just shy of 4,000 people in that group, and every day, more people wanting to get in, wanting to get in, wanting to get in. And so you read things in there, and you start reading. Now, this if, if, if there's 4,000 people in the group, you understand that represents 8,000 people, 4,000 marriages, 8,000 people because of the spouses and then the kids. And you read things like this. One lady, one lady posted a drawing by her 8-year-old daughter. That was a stick figure drawing. She's 8 of a little girl next to a table on which there was a telephone. And the little girl had big tears all the way down to the bottom, saying, Daddy, please call. Oh, it's interesting. Here's what the statistics say. And again, I know that individuals are not statistics in America. In America right now, if the father leaves the children with the, with the wife, the mom, within a year, in about a year, one-fourth of those dads have little to nothing to do with their children anymore after that. Oh, and by the way, think about it. Not everybody in America has got a whole lot of money. 
And if you take a home that's just getting by, they're okay. They're not rich. They're getting okay. They're doing okay. And then you split it up so now that there's expenses over here and expenses over here, 50% of children whose parents divorce live under the poverty level because they don't have the resources they used to have before. We hear things like this. One woman wrote about her 14-year-old son, 12-year-old son, and 10-year-old daughter. Dad, her husband, good Christian man, went to church, taught Bible class, reared his children up, teaching them what is right and what is wrong. Here's what God says you should do. Here's what God says you shouldn't do until he, quote, falls in love, end quote, with another woman. And now he moves out. He moves out, and he's living with the other woman. And his 14-year-old son, when he said, okay, you kids come over to see me now, his 14-year-old son said, you taught me what is right and wrong. You taught me the man I'm supposed to grow up to be, which is the man that you used to be, but you are not now. And you want me to come see you and her and act like everything's okay when you're living in direct contradiction to what you taught me is right? No, sir. You're still my father. But no. I will not be part of this. And dad gets angry. He doesn't look at his son and say, thank you for standing up for what you've been taught is right. That's not what he says. He gets angry and says, well, actually, he didn't say it to the boy. He called mom. It's your job to make him respect me. She calls us and said, is that my job? No, ma'am. It's not your job to make your son respect a husband who's living in contradiction to everything he's ever taught that boy. By the way, the 12-year-old boy and the 10-year-old daughter would still go see dad until recently, and now they won't go either. They haven't made the same strong moral stand. They just say, dad, we can't take it. We can't leave our home and go see you with that other woman like everything you're doing is okay. We can't go anymore. Story after story after story. Reading on our Facebook page, hearing people that call my on on Tuesday nights beginning at 9 p.m. Central on on marriageradio.com, if ever you think about it, marriageradio.com at 9 p.m. on Tuesday nights. I do an online call-in radio program. People call from Australia and Switzerland and America, even exotic places like Louisiana. People call in, and we get to hear these stories over and over and over again of these children who are in such pain, these children who are begging God every night, do something. And then, and then, it makes me think about that passage where it said, if you had the word of God, you wouldn't prostitute yourself by following your own lusts. Prostitute myself? Selling yourself out to other gods. For example, one lady in one of our workshops who was not only divorcing her husband, but but leaving their son, who had not yet started the first grade, who had cancer, leaving him with the husband because she said, that's just such a downer. I deserve to be happy. God wants me to be happy, so I'm leaving them, and I'm going to find some guy to make me happy. I actually asked her, I said, if God spoke to you right now, right now, what would he say? She said, he'd tell me, you're on the cliff. Jump. I'll catch you. I just want you to be happy. Do what makes you happy.
Now, if she's listening to a spirit, it ain't God. You understand? Oh, by the way, back in those days, in our workshops for marriages in crisis, we'd take photographs of everybody to put in our files. So if they called back to talk to me, I could look at the picture and remember who they were. She refused to let us take her picture. That's fine. I told one of our guys, the reason she refuses is because she knows she won't show up on the film. Her heart was totally about following her own lust, following gods that she had created that were not the God of heaven. And what do you think is going to happen to a five-year-old boy fighting cancer? whose mama leaves him because it's such a downer. You say, there are not many people out there like that. I pray that they're not. But here's what I'm trying to say to you. Nobody has a perfect marriage. But if indeed we wanted to affect and impress on our children, and through that our children's children, if we want to make the world a better place for the world to come, not just in terms of morals, but in terms of salvation, if we really want to do that, then our impressing the law of God means that we have to have it in our hearts and then not just teach it to our children, but live it. And sometimes that's hard to do. Because sometimes, sometimes our spouse is a jerk. Would you agree? Or, or jerk it. I mean, I'm sure that if you've been married any length of time at all, there have been times when you awakened, when your spouse was still sleeping, and you looked at him or her and thought, thank you, God. But if you've been married very long, I'm sure there are times when you awakened, when your spouse was still sleeping, you turned and looked at her or him and thought, what was I thinking? <laughs> My mama was right. <laughs> So what do you do? You can either say, I'm going to do what makes me happy right now. Understand this. Happiness is based on what's happening. It's always fleeting. Joy is something that comes within you because you know you're doing the right thing. Now, I understand this up close and personal. Alice and I, my wife who's sitting right over here, we're in our second marriage to each other. Which, by the way, makes it very difficult to tell people how long you've been married. We've been married 29 years this time. They say, how long have you been married? 29 years. How's your daughter? 45. So I thought, wait a minute, 15 years the first time, 29 this time, that's 44 years. How long have you been married? 44 years. How's your daughter? 45. So now we just tell people we've married 47 years, give or take three. I left Alice back in 1984, went off and lived in sin. Don't need to tell the story now. Bought in to the logic that I could be a good dad every other weekend to my children, and that's all they needed. Don't have time to explain this in detail. Let me just give it very briefly to you. There's a, a little acronym we use in many things that we teach about relationships. It's called PIES, P-I-E-S. Just stay with me for a second. The P stands for physical. You got that? P is physical. I is intellectual. E is emotional. S is spiritual. So physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual. PIES. If you wear it, think about it this way. Body, mind, heart, and soul. You say, well, why didn't you use those words? They don't spell anything. 
We use it to explain lots of things about relationships. Let me explain about my daughter, a mentally handicapped daughter who was 13 when I left, another daughter who was 6 when I left. They had physical needs. Sometimes they just needed to climb in Daddy's lap. Sometimes they just wanted to know he was in the same house. They wanted to know he'd be there to protect them. Interestingly, that need doesn't exist just every other weekend. Intellectually, they wanted to be able to talk, to ask questions, to learn. Remember when your kids used to ask all those questions that drove you crazy? Wah, wah, wah. And finally, as a father, you'd say, ask your mom. They want to talk to dad as well. And, and so she wanted to be able to ask questions about the world. How does this work? Why do people do that? And et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and her need to have that interaction where her dad did not happen just every other weekend. Emotional. I need to know that you love me. I need you to come see me sleeping sometime. I, I need to know that I can come and peek through your door into your bedroom to see you sleeping and know that you're there. I, I need sometimes just to be able to touch you, to hold you. I need that emotional fulfillment. does not happen just every other weekend. And spiritually, teach me your beliefs and values. Let me question it. Let me even rebel against some of them. Let me argue with you as I figure out what I truly believe. Because that's part of what we do as parents. We teach, and then we explain, and then we defend. Because our kids have to learn to think. We do all those things, and that need does not happen just every other weekend. Three years before Alice and I remarried. It was kind of interesting when we went to get the marriage license for the second marriage. Our kids were with us. Joanna was now nine. This, I'm not making this up. This actually happened. The lady at the courthouse was filling out our marriage license, and she said, have either of you been married before? To each other. She actually said this, did that marriage end by divorce or death? <laughs> she didn't think that was nearly as funny as we as. We did. And so now Joanna is nine. We remarry. I'm, I'm now not speaking for churches in those days. I'm speaking for corporations, and I'm flying off to do things for Sears and United Artists and things like that. And, and every time I would leave, she would cry inordinately. And I didn't want to ask her why. Because I knew. After a couple of years, I'm about to fly out someplace again, and I said, Honey... Planes are safe. I'll be back. She said, really? You left once and you didn't come back. I don't know you're coming back this time. I don't know how many times I reassured her over the years. If I leave happy, I'm coming back. If I leave sad, I'm coming back. If I leave mad, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. The only thing that will keep me from coming back is if I'm dead. And if that's the case, I'll wait in heaven for you, and I'll see you there. But I'm coming back. But you and Mom sometimes don't get along. Hey, I'm coming back. We'll work out whatever problems we have. And that's what we do at MarriageHelper.com. We work with marriages, particularly marriages in crisis. By the grace of God, by the grace of God, our success rate, and it's a God thing, is three out of four marriages that come to us who are in crisis, they turn around and save the marriage. That's just totally a God thing. As one of my psychiatrist friends who's a Christian said, I know that's from God. I said, how? He said, you aren't that smart. (laughs) I agree, I'm not. 
We're going to be here. So let's end just with asking you to do three things, just three things. Number one, if, if indeed you still have your children at home, or even if they're grown and you've got good relationship for the sake of your children, when you find yourselves with marital distress, which sometimes happen, you think to yourself, it's about doing the right thing. We'll learn how to be in love with each other again. We can learn how to solve our problems. There's help. I mean, right here, Trent's got a doctorate in marriage and family therapy. Joe Neal, Kirby's around. I mean, there are people here and people like us, and we'll do everything we can to help you. But you can do it unless you decide to prostitute yourself and follow your own lives or follow gods which are not the God. So keep it together. Keep it together in a way where you make it good. Number two, if you, if you have hurt your children, not just your spouse, but your children, they may even be grown now. They may still be young. If, if for example, you guys divorced and neither one of you has married somebody else, we'll work with you and other people will too to help you fix that and put it back together and marry each other again. I know it can be done. I have been there. We actually have one couple that was divorced 10 years, put it back together and remarry. That's like marrying brand new people. So put it back together if you can. If you can't put it back together because one of you's married somebody else, go to your kids. Look them in the eye. And if you were the one who did stuff that hurt your kids, have the courage to look them in the eye. And say, I was wrong. I am sorry. Forgive me. And from this point on, I will follow God. Then listen. Because they may need to tell you about their hurt. And if they do tell you about their hurt, do not defend yourself. Do not justify what you did. You listen. You listen. And then you tell them again how sorry you are. And ask them if they can to forgive you. And then you do the best you can from this point on. Number three, I mentioned there are 20 million kids in America right now under 18 who are living with one parent because the other left, or sometimes living with relatives. Please pray for those kids. One thing we have started, and you said that next thing up there called Divorce Help for Kids, it's a brand new thing. Our, our executive director, our CEO is Kimberly Holmes. She's sitting right there with her husband, Rob part of our, our nonprofit 501c3. This new thing is actually developing products just for kids and their parents to help the kids if the parents are fighting, divorcing, or divorced. And, and most of the stuff for the kids is going to be apps because that's what they do, you understand? Most of the stuff for parents are going to be on the Internet and on the page. But it's going to be like, like for example, if that 14-year-old boy who's dealing with his great anger at his father, for you taught me one thing and you're living another, there'll be apps to help him find things to help him deal with that anger, that hurt, that frustration in, in good, healthy, solid ways. There's going to be things on there for parents teaching them how to do this and that to help their kids. Oh, and we'll also be saying, and if you have any second thoughts, go to that other side. Let us try to help. Please pray for that. We intend for no kid to have to pay ever a penny for any of those sources. You understand? Oh, there will also be a prayer forum where kids can put their prayer requests. We 
we'll make sure we take out all identifying marks because that would be a predator's paradise. But you'll see that there's a kid here who's 14 living somewhere in Louisiana, this little boy, saying, here's my hurt, and we're going to be asking people all over the world to pray for these kids. And then we're going to offer all these resources. The commissioner of education for the state of Tennessee has already asked, can we use these resources? And every school in Tennessee, once you get it finished, yes, please pray for it. Some of you may wind up be helping us in some other ways. Al and Lisa Robertson are on the advisory board for that. So you have people right here. You can ask about it. But this is needed. Now, please hear me as I wrap this up. Because I'm sure you're thinking, I am so glad I came to church today to get all encouraged and built up. I know it's kind of depressing. But it's reality. And if we don't face reality... The only time hiding under the cover saves you from the boogeyman is when there is no boogeyman. Otherwise, hiding under the cover just sets you up for disaster. It's time we turn this around. Start with your children, even if they're grown. If you have them, your grandchildren. If you have them, your your great-great-grandchildren. Or if you're like Larry West, your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. I'm kidding. Larry and I are almost the same age. He's just much older. (laughs) It's time to do something. We must start with our own selves, filling our hearts with the Word of God, impressing it on our families by how we teach, but also how we live, and by reaching out to all those children and single parents who are in pain and need help out there. Please, let's do something. Let's turn around what's happening for the children.